You may be seated. Just as a question, as we start out, here's, here's my question for you. How many of you look forward to funerals? How many of you get excited about, man, this Saturday I get to go to a funeral? I've done a lot of funerals as a pastor now. I have never had one where I looked forward to the funeral. I've never met someone who came to a funeral and was excited about being there. Why do we hate funerals? We might pretend that we don't, but there is an element that we hate funerals because they are the reminder of our greatest failure. They are the unavoidable encounter with our punishment. We hate funerals because they are all about death. We don't want to interact. We don't want to think. We don't want to have to consider and face the reality of death. We're coming closer to a holiday now where everyone seems to pretend that death is okay. Let's put decorations out. Let's put skeletons. Let's make cemeteries in our front yard. Let's do all of these things celebrating death. And yet when people come face to face with the reality of death, they do not celebrate. Here's one of the ways I know. The many times that I go and perform different funerals, I've done a, a... funerals here in our congregation, but I've done far more funerals for our community. Uh, One of the local uh, funeral directors, he knows I'm willing to do it. The understanding is, if he calls me, I just tell him, listen, I'll do the funeral. You just need to explain to the people that I'm going to proclaim the gospel during that funeral. And that's the understanding, and as long as they're okay with that, then I'm willing to do the funeral. But in all of the funerals that I've performed... The thing, why are we there? What has gathered all of us together in that moment? Death. What is the thing that you would expect us to talk about in a funeral? Death. What is the thing that is most avoided talking about in a funeral? Death. You can go to a funeral and never hear the word death. Never hear the word that the person died. What do we hear? They're gone. They've departed. They're no longer with us. They're in a better place. The way they talk about it makes it sound like they might just be in the other room coming waiting to surprise us. We don't want to talk about death. The kids are here, and it's almost like, we don't want to talk about dying. We don't want to talk about it. If you don't know what that's from, ask a child, a grandchild, a teenager. We don't like talking about death because it's painful. 
because of what it reminds us of, because of what it, the reality it points us to. But we come to our passage this morning, and John doesn't do that. John doesn't downplay the death of Christ. John dials it up. John wants us to focus on this reality. This morning, our passage is all about death. Its focus is singular. And in our message this morning, we're going to ask three different questions, all pertaining to the death of Christ. Here's the first question we're going to look at is, what does John want us to know? The next question then is, why does John want us to know? The last question is, how does John want us to respond to what we know? So let's look at the first question. What does John want us to know? That Jesus died. John doesn't want us to get past this. John doesn't want us to skip from the crucifixion straight to the resurrection. He wants us to pause and understand the reality Jesus really died. See, if you have something you think people are going to struggle to believe, what do you do? You provide evidence. You bring witnesses. You use different things to prove what you're saying is true, and that's what John does. In our first paragraph, John provides five witnesses that prove Christ's death on the cross. Let's look at the first witness in verse 31. The first witness is the character witness of the Jews. It's the character witness of the Jews. Look at thir- verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bo- that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. There's a lot going on here. The first thing we see is that it's the day of preparation. This is the day that the Jews were to prepare for the Sabbath. If you know much about Jewish culture, you know that the Sabbath was very important and there were lots of rules regarding the Sabbath. There were things that they could not do. And because there were things they could not do, what did they have to do the day before? They had to prepare. All the things that needed to be done that couldn't be done on the Sabbath needed to be done before. That's it. This is a day of preparation. But it's not just any Sabbath, it's a high day. This is a Sabbath that is more significant than the others because this one falls during Passover. So what are the Jews concerned about? They don't want the bodies to remain on the cross. Well, why not? Well, it's because of an Old Testament law in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." Remember, when John is talking about the Jews, he's generally referring to the Jewish leaders. Within chapter 19, that's been the chief priests and the officers. These are the top 
Jews. These are the Jews that everybody's watching, that everyone's observing. What do they do? And for them, it is really important that they follow the law. They don't want to be caught breaking the law. It's really important on such an important day, this high Sabbath. So what do they do? They ask Pilate to have the legs broken of the men being crucified. Why is that their request? Now this is a a little gruesome, but, but you need to understand part of what the cross was meant to accomplish. Not, not in Christ, but for everyone. The cross was a place of shame. It was a place of judgment. People who were put on a cross were meant to be on display. They were meant to suffer. They were meant to be a mockery before others, a warning. We know that because of where they put Jesus. He was near where people were entering the town. We know that because Pilate puts an inscription above Christ's head that people would be able to see and read. He puts it in three languages. They wanted this to be something public and not fast. It was meant to take a long time. If you were to think of of joining things that we're more familiar with, the, the stockade, Right? If you think of medieval times where people were put their head and their legs and, and they were in agony, and, and why, why were they doing that? To shame them. So that everyone would see them and see how despicable that person was and they would throw things and they would revile them. And that was, we see that in the other Gospels, that that's what people were doing to Jesus. They were mocking him. If you join the stockade, the public shame, with a hanging, a public shame, Uh, judgment, that's what you get in the cross. Both the public shame and the public condemnation. And so the purpose was for this to last a long time. As the people hung up by their arms, if you've ever tried to just hang for a very long time, the thing that gets hard to do is to breathe. And so the people being crucified, what they struggled with was breathing. And so they would have to push up with their legs to expand their lungs and get that breath. And so what was the way to quicken someone's death? Break their legs. It's likely that they had a specific tool. It might have even been the hammer that they used to drive the nails in. But they would come up and break the legs of the people. Why? Because then they can no longer take the breath necessary. Why are the Jews asking for this? Because they don't want to break Deuteronomy. They don't want these people hanging on a tree so that their land would be desecrated. But do you see the tragic irony in their request? They are devoting themselves to their external appearance of holiness while completely ignoring their internal reality of total depravity. They're more concerned with external laws, more concerned with the appearance of evil, and not concerned with the internal, real evil. They're not even holding to the law correctly, because it says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, what crime did Jesus commit? 
Jesus hadn't committed any crime, let alone one punishable by death. But that wasn't the Jews' concern. Their concern was to kill Jesus and appear holy rather than be holy. What is John showing us? He's using the character of the Jews as a witness to Christ's death. Why? How how does that work? Because the Jews would never allow Christ to be removed from the cross unless he was already dead. They would never be okay with it. The Jews didn't finally achieve their desire of seeing Jesus hanging on the cross and say, you know what? I think it's been enough. I think he's learned his lesson. You know, tomorrow's a, a Sabbath, a high Sabbath, and there's that law in Deuteronomy. So let's let him down. Enough is enough. He's learned his lesson. We've shamed him. We're good. No. What has John shown us since chapter 5 that their goal has been? They have wanted to kill Jesus. Their concern isn't with holiness because they've broken the law. Their concern isn't losing their place and their nation because they've already placed themselves under Caesar and proclaiming, we have no king but Caesar. The character witness of the Jews is that they would never allow Christ to come down from the cross unless they had accomplished their primary purpose, which was to see him killed. John now brings the next witness that proves Christ's death. We move to the expert witness of the soldiers. Verse 32 says, that, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Apparently, Pilate agreed to the Jews' request because now we see the soldiers coming to do exactly what the Jews asked for. Now, who, who are these soldiers? These are experts in death. These are trained executioners. They know whoever goes up on that cross doesn't come down while there is still life in their blood. So the soldiers go about the grisly task of breaking legs. They come to the criminals on either side of Jesus. They break their legs so that they would die more quickly. And then what happens? Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. What happened? Did they get tired after breaking the legs of the others and just give up when it came to Jesus? No, these soldiers have a mission. They aren't going to fail because of laziness. They're not going to, because of their respect for Jesus, not accomplish what Pilate has told them to do. The only reason they would not break his legs is if he's already dead. They came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. John provides the second witness to the death of Christ because he provides us with the expert witness of the soldiers. They knew it. They could recognize it. They had a mission. They wouldn't let Jesus come down from that cross unless he was dead. We move to the third witness, which is the physical witness of the spear, blood, and water. Verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. While the soldiers were experts, 
While they could recognize when someone was truly dead, they still didn't take any chances. One of the soldiers decides, no, I'm really going to make sure that this person is dead. He takes a spear and pierces his side, and at once there came out blood and water. There's various medical explanations and theories of what is happening, what physiologically is happening as blood and water come out. And if that's the thing that uh, you are fascinated in and want to study, I would encourage you to do so. But, but here's the point. What does water and blood demonstrate when it pours out from someone? That they're dead. That's not the normal thing to happen. This is not fresh blood of a beating heart. This is the pooled blood and water of a corpse. John is proving Christ's death on the cross through the physical witness. He truly was dead. We then turn to the eyewitness of John in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. John now is appealing to what he has seen. I didn't get this as secondhand information. I didn't go interview the soldiers and ask them, hey, what exactly happened? Did he really die? No, I was there. I saw it. I'm the one bearing witness to it. I'm the one that's telling you, and this is true. There was no trickery. Now, you might look at this and think, well, that's not a very compelling witness. I mean, calling the one that Jesus loved to the stand, I mean, he's going to have ulterior motives. But I just want to challenge that thought because you're going to hear things like that where people say, well, I mean, how can you really trust? I mean, John, John's opinion. But, but here's the question. Here's what I would like you to consider. What benefit did John and the first disciples gain in following Christ and proclaiming his death? What benefit on a human level would we look at the lives of the disciples and of John and say, man, your life got so much better after you started telling everyone that Jesus really died and came back to life. There's no human benefit. Most of the disciples die. Some of them are also crucified. John is exiled. They are all persecuted. All of them have what Jesus said, they will persecute you in my name. This isn't a a thing that's like, man, I think I can get my standing better if I really proclaim the death of Christ. So why is John's witness compelling? Because it's true. He is saying, this is what I saw. The disciples suffered for proclaiming Christ's death and its significance. The eyewitness of John further proves Christ's death on the cross. The final witness that John gives in this first paragraph, though, is the divine witness of Scripture. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Why does John bring up scripture now? Because John wants us to see that this wasn't a mistake. God didn't have to call an audible. He didn't change the plan because he never expected that people would actually crucify his son. He wasn't caught off guard. 
Now, all of this was according to Scripture. The first fulfillment is found in, in that none of his bones were broken. John is likely seeing a fulfillment of Psalm 34, which says this in verse 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Jesus is the righteous one who is afflicted, but none of his bones are broken. It's likely, though, that John also sees another fulfillment. How has John seen who Jesus is? What is one of the first ways in which John introduces Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Passover Lamb, but there were rules regarding Passover lambs. The Passover lambs had to be without blemish. In both Exodus and Numbers, it gives instructions and says that their bones were not to be broken. These lambs were meant to be pure. Jesus is the perfect, without blemish, sacrificial Passover lamb. 1 Peter 1.19 says, We were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He fulfilled what was written. Scripture is the divine witness regarding Christ's death. This was according to plan. The second fulfillment is, in, is that they will look on him whom they have pierced. This comes from Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And look, notice what, what God is saying. When they look on me, God, on him whom they have pierced. That was a confusing thing in the Old Testament. Wait a second. Why is Jesus mixing, why is God mixing the pronouns? They will look on me, on him. Well, how does that work? Because it was Christ. Christ who was God. They will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over one, over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It's a terrible fulfillment. It is the tragic reality of the death of Christ, but it's part of the plan. Because Zechariah 13.1 says, right after this verse, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The divine witness of Scripture points to the death of Christ as part of the plan. So what do we see from the witnesses that John provides while Christ hangs on the cross? Jesus died. That's what John wants us to know. All of these witnesses are pointing to the same thing. And normally that would be enough, but John doesn't give up. John not only gives us proof of Christ's death from the cross, he also gives credibility through what happens in his burial. Within Christ's burial, we find two unexpected individuals who come forward to care for Christ's body. The first unexpected individual is Joseph, the hidden disciple. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might, come, might take away the body of Christ, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. 
We know from Mark that Joseph was a person of importance. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the rulers, the, the, the council over the Jews. He has, is a disciple. Joseph is a disciple. But what does John say? Secretly. Out of fear. If there was a moment to hide your belief in Jesus, when's that moment? Right now. In fact, that's what all the other disciples are doing. They've left him. But here comes this guy who has so much to lose, so much to lose with his position, with all of the other people who are against him, all of the rest of the council who have condemned Christ, and yet he comes and asks that he might take the body. I wonder what the last hours have been like for Joseph as he's watched those around him condemn the one he reveres, but his allegiance to the king was still secret until now. Now when it seems the enemy has won, now the moment where it would make the most sense to keep his allegiance hidden, in this moment Joseph comes forward and requests for Christ's body. He no longer is hiding. He asks Pilate, and Pilate gives him permission. We then have another character who comes in, one we've met before, and it's one, again, that we wouldn't expect. The second unexpected individual is Nicodemus, the one who had come by night. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Notice how John introduces Nicodemus, who, had, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. What is John doing? Is that just to say, hey, this was the time that that happened. This is probably when their schedules matched up and Nicodemus was free in the evening, so that's when he came? No. What's one of the themes in John? Light and darkness. After Judas betrays Jesus when he's leaving and, Ju and Jesus tells Judas, go do what you, you, you're going to do, he leaves and what does John say? And it was night. John is very intentional describing when Nicodemus comes. The rest of John 3, in that passage where Nicodemus comes, it goes into this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but the, the uh, darkness hated the light because its works were exposed. Nicodemus before came at night. We know that Nicodemus is also a respected individual because Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. Again, this is someone important and in good standing with the rest of the Jews. He has protected his standing by limiting his interaction with Jesus under the cover of darkness. But now he comes in the day. He doesn't just do what is necessary to fulfill the law in Deuteronomy to just get him off of the tree. He brings an extravagant amount of spices. He doesn't bring just what would be expected in the burial of a criminal. Both in quality and in quantity, he brings spices fit for a king. It is then that these two unlikely individuals come together and care for Christ's body. So they took the body of Christ and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. They bury him. They follow the customs. They lay him in the tomb that is at hand. 
I think normally the, the, the question that's in our mind, normally the conversation at this point would go, okay, so let's talk about Nicodemus. Is this where he comes to faith? Is he now a disciple? That's not the point. The point in all of this is giving evidence to what has happened. Jesus died. These two unlikely individuals are caring for the body of Christ. They are doing all of the customs. John is providing a witness of people that were known. People would know, the first readers would know about Nicodemus. They would know about Joseph. These weren't just, it would be a totally different story if we said, and then Peter, James, and John took the body of Christ, and you're just going to have to trust us that they buried it right. John gives us everything we need to know that Jesus truly died. That's what John wants us to know. Jesus really died. Okay, I, I think that at this point, John has proved his point. I kind of shudder to think what it would be like going to a funeral with John. Like every time that he starts a conversation with someone, he's like, hey, that guy, he's dead. Want to know, know how I know? And like, here's all the reasons that he's dead. Why? Why go over all of these different reasons to point to the death of Christ? Because John knows that Christ's death was necessary. I, I want to quickly just zoom in and look at it from John's perspective in this book, the immediate context why does John want us to know that Jesus died? Both because of what comes immediately after and what comes, it came immediately before. John knows where this story is going. What does he know is about to happen? The resurrection. What is everyone going to doubt when John claims that Jesus came back to life? Let, let me give you this, uh, just a, explain this real quickly. So, a long time ago, I had a plant in my office, and I tried some, it, it was a, a little bonsai tree, and I tried some different experiments that I had seen on YouTube, and the result, it died. Very quickly, within a week of me getting that plant, every single leaf on that tree was gone, and it stayed that way. It was dead. But I left it in my office because I was doing other things. For months, it looked the same way until a miracle happened. One day, all of these leaves started sprouting, and within a couple of weeks, it looked better than it had ever looked before. What happened? Resurrection in my office, obviously. It was a miracle. So what I quickly did, I started plucking all the leaves, selling them online as a miracle solution because obviously resurrection has happened. And I would go to you, guys, my tree resurrected. It was dead and now it's alive. What is every single person here thinking? It wasn't dead. No, it wasn't dead. And you're right, it wasn't dead. I did some research. When people who are amateurs and don't know what they do, are, they're doing, that's what those types of trees often do. They lose all of their leaves, they go into a hibernation, and I thought it was dead, but it wasn't. How many people are going to claim, based off of what is about to happen, the same thing about Jesus? He was comatose. He had gotten to a point where he was just, the blood loss, he was there, so he didn't really die. 
He was put into the tomb with this really big rock and he had 75 pounds of stuff around him in linen, but he started feeling better after three days without eating and got himself out. Why is it so important for John to give all of these things? Because he knows what's coming. No one's going to believe in the resurrection if they don't believe first in the death. It's necessary. It's also necessary, though, because of what has come before. Last week, as we were finishing the previous uh, passage, what were Jesus' final words? It is finished. When did he say that? As he was dying, what happened immediately after he said those? He gave up his spirit. It was not taken from him. He gave it at that moment. It was a decision. If Jesus just fainted after that moment, it's not the climax. It's not real. The climax of Scripture is the death of Jesus. He died. Jesus knew that everything had been building to that moment, and that's why he said what he did. He finished the work. The crucifixion of Christ is not the climax of history if the death of Christ was nothing more than a con. Let me say that again. The crucifixion of Christ is not the climax of history if the death of Christ was nothing more than a con. Jesus died. John wants us to know that. This is our big idea. Believe in Christ's death, which was necessary before new life was found in him. The death was necessary. Before we can find the new life in him, he had to die. We, We could spend eternity unpacking this. And no, my messages do not count as an eternity. But, but we need to get this. I think John is focusing on Christ's death because John understands the bigger picture. The reason he hits it over and over and over again is because he understands where this fits in the bigger story. Zoom out with me real quick as we turn to Genesis. Turn over to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, God creates something entirely set apart from the rest of creation. In Genesis 1, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis 2, he goes further into the explanation of the creation of man and woman. But we, what we see is that man is different. Man alone is created in God's own image image. In verse 7 of chapter 2, God forms man out of the dust of earth, and then in verse 8, God plants a garden and places that man in the garden. God puts everything that humanity would need in the garden, not just for survival, but to thrive. Adam and Eve had every tree imaginable, every good thing to eat, and even better than that, they had God himself who walked with them. There is no sin, there is no shame, and there is no separation in this garden. It is a place of blessing. 
But in chapter 3, all of that changes. While they are still in the garden, still in the place of blessing, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They desecrate the garden with their sin, shame, that leads to their separation. We see their sin in verse 6 of chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What had God told them? All of this is for you, but not this one. Their sin led to shame. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. They were naked earlier. Earlier it says they were naked and unashamed because nothing was wrong. But now they're naked and they're covering it up. They're shamed. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin, shame, separation, while still in the garden, they are separated from God. What had God told them what would happen if they rebelled and ate the fruit? God told them they would die. They would be separated from him. Their sin, shame, and separation in the garden meant that they were now no longer to be blessed by the blessing of the garden, but now would face banishment. Genesis 3.22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Where's the hope? We ruined everything. The blessing that God had given humanity, humanity rejected, and the result was banishment. It's all our fault. This banishment was not on God being spiteful. We caused this. And yet there is hope. Before God banished them from the garden, he gave them hope in the form of a promise. And the hope was found in a seed. It was found that in the seed of the woman that one would come to conquer evil. Not much was given. There's not much there in that little promise in in chapter 3 of of this huge, shining hope. It's not that. It's a glimmer. Just a glimmer of hope that something's coming. And then throughout the Old Testament, that glimmer grows brighter. Throughout the Old Testament, God continues to expand the reality of what he promised. He is showing us, this is what I meant when I said that. This is what I'm going to do. It kept growing greater and greater. The seed would bring a greater blessing. The seed would conquer the greatest enemies. This seed would bring a better garden. But as the hope became brighter, the problem grew darker. 
As time went on, as man moved further and further from the garden, the depth and darkness of man's depravity became even more apparent. Until the light came. Until the seed of the woman was finally revealed. John 1 verse 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the light is here. The light has joined us in our banishment. The light does not come to us while we are blessed in the garden. The light joins us in our darkness. But even though the light is here, the darkness still grips us. We are the children of darkness. But darkness does not overcome the light. The light did not come to mock us, to expose us, to show us our sin and shame and separation, to condemn us. The light came to save. How? We aren't banished unjustly. This isn't just the element where God's given it enough time and, and his temper has come down a little bit because, you know what, it, it's fine now. No. We deserve this banishment. The offense has not grown less with time. It has grown greater with each passing sin that we commit. So how can this light pardon those things? How can the light deal with our sin, our shame, our separation? Because he took on our sin, our shame, and separation. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. He who had done nothing to be ashamed was shamed for us. He who was righteous and holy was separated from the Father for us. The light of the world joined us in our banishment and took on our sin, shame, and separation. Why? Why would he do that? So that the seed that would be planted would bring a better and greater garden. In John 12, 23, Jesus says this. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, unless a seed falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. End of our passage, John 19, 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus is the seed that falls and dies and is laid in the garden. Believe in Christ's death, which was necessary before new life was found in him. If the seed was not planted, there was no end to our banishment. There is no new garden if the seed does not fall and die, but praise Jesus, he came. 
He is the promised seed that joined us in our banishment. He is the seed that took our sin, shame, and separation. He is the seed that dies and bears much fruit. He is the seed that leads us to a better garden, to a better blessing. He is the seed that brings life. But none of that could happen if he did not first die. Believe in Christ's death, which was necessary before new life was found in him. If Christ did not die, then new life could not be found in him. The price had to be paid. The curse had to be reversed. The seed had to be planted. Why does John want us to know that Jesus died? Because everything hangs on that. If Jesus did not die, there is no hope for us. John wants us to know that Jesus died because Jesus' death was necessary. So here's the last question. How does John want us to respond to this truth? Look back at verse 35. Belief. John wants us to believe that Jesus died. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. Why? That you also may believe. Believe it. Believe it. On your handout, there's actually two big ideas with only two words that are are changed. The words that are changed are was compared to is. The other big idea is this. Believe in Christ's death, which is necessary before new life is found in him. The first big idea in saying was focuses on the death. Believe in Christ's death which was necessary before new life was found in him. But now we look at what is necessary. Belief is necessary. Believe in Christ's death, which is necessary before new life is found in him. If you don't believe in his death, you will not have new life. What does that look like? Most of us here have done that. But I want to challenge a way that we think about this. See, we often think of belief as a one-time occurrence that was needed for salvation. I believed in Christ's death, I was saved, and now I have new life. Past belief, past salvation, current life. That's not the idea for John. This belief is to be ongoing. It is supposed to impact every single day. It is supposed to change every reality. We don't just need Christ's death so that we can be saved. We need Christ's death so that we can live. Every day must be impacted by the reality of Christ's death. Belief is an ongoing reality that impacts everything. Belief in the death of Christ should not just impact someday where we prayed a prayer. Belief in Christ's death impacts every moment. Here's the question. What difference is the reality and necessity of Christ's death making in your day-to-day life? Is my belief in Christ's death so vibrant, so present, so foundational that everything is interpreted through the lens of his death? I'm going to be honest, that's not always the case for me. I'm embarrassed by how few times that's the case for me. How often do I not live according to my belief in the death of Jesus? Do do this exercise as you go through your week. Ask the question, what impact does my belief in the death of Christ have on this moment? 
What difference does it make that Jesus died? What difference does that make to what I'm facing right now? If we understand the death, if we go through that, it will change everything. Our belief in the death must never be relegated to something that happened once in the past. Our belief must be ongoing. But maybe you're here and you've never believed in Christ's death. You've never understood its significance and necessity. Friend, if you are here and you've never believed in Christ's death, please don't leave in the same state. Don't leave still banished because of your sin. Don't leave still in your shame. Don't leave separated from your Savior. He died for you. His death was necessary. He took your place. It wasn't a con. It was the climax. He really did it. Believe it. If you don't believe it, there is no life. If you have questions about that and you're not sure what that looks like, talk to me. Pull me aside. If you don't want to do that, email me. On our website, you can find my email. If you don't want to do that, talk to someone else in this room. But don't leave banished when there is blessing. Believe in Christ's death, which was necessary before new life was found in him. Believe in Christ's death, which is necessary before new life is found in him. What does John want us to know? That Jesus really died. Why does he want us to know? Because it was necessary. How does he want us to respond? Believing in it. Let's stand.